Welcome back to another episode of Remnant Stew. I'm your host, Leah, here in the studio with Phil. Hi. And I'm Steve. You know, the world is full of abandoned places. Though they may be empty now, several of these places have fascinating and sometimes tragic histories. Some retain bits of their former grandeur with remarkable architecture and stunning locations, yet for some reason or another, people stopped using them. Stay tuned to hear stories about some of the most intriguing abandoned places we could find. If you have an appetite for the strange and bizarre... Then pull up a chair and grab a spoon for another intriguing serving of Remnant Stew. Remnant Stew is gluten-free, organic, made from all natural, free-range ingredients and guaranteed to provide the recommended daily serving of curiosity. All right, Leah, let's take a look at the calendar. Today is August the 16th. And you know what? This is a, this is a special day. I think this would be a great uh, day for everybody to enjoy because it's National Tell-A-Joke Day. Oh, even better. Right, <laughs> right up your alley, Phil. National Tell-A-Joke Day seeks to encourage telling a joke to boost happiness and laughter. Laughter has many health benefits. It can prevent heart disease and relax your muscles. According to PIHHealth.org, I'll tell you about that in just a second, uh, when you uh, when you hear a good joke, it activates neurons in the brain called the reward pathway. It's triggered by humor and causes euphoria, which reduces stress. I love it. I love to laugh. Right, love to laugh. But now it's a good it, song, by the way. Yeah, that was a good song oh. from Mary Poppins, right? <laughs> right? I love to laugh. Yeah, that was a good one. I laughed um, through the whole thing. I yeah, I did too. <laughs> now this pihhealth.org, I couldn't figure out who that was, so I finally looked it up, and that turns out to be Presbyterian Intercommunity Hospital of Whittier, California, and that makes sense because nobody's funnier than Presbyterians. I say that because I have a lot of cousins and family members and friends who are Presbyterians, and so I have a joke today that was told to me by a Presbyterian pastor. Okay. Oh, on us. This was a Presbyterian pastor. He was a pastor up in Amarillo, Texas. His name is Howard Griffin, Dr. Howard Griffin, by the way. And he talks about this. It tells it on himself. He said that when he was a kid, he was always in trouble. And so during the summertime, his parents sent him to the vacation Bible school of every church in town, not just his own. I know parents that do that. <laughs> right. <laughs> you well, take them. I don't need them. He said, from the Baptist church, I learned a great respect of Scripture. And from the Methodist church, I learned some beautiful hymns and singing. And from the Presbyterians, I learned how to form committees. So that was the <laughs> that was Presbyterians are rolling over laughing right now. The rest of you may be scratching your head, but that's or, okay. Or writing us a letter. Yeah. <laughs> There's a committee being formed about this. Right, I believe so. Oh, Let's oh. form a committee. Now, tomorrow, August 17th, is a very special day for us here at Remnants. Do you see that is our one-year birthday? That's right. One year of releasing episodes. Our Woo-hoo. first episode was released on August 17th. Balloonacy. 2020. Balloonacy, right. That mm-hmm. was a good episode. That was a good episode, our very first one. And uh, now we have a little special bonus for you all uh, we are going to release an episode about oh, our favorite stories and we'd like to hear from you too and uh, have right. you tell us some of your favorite stories what are some of your favorite stories that you have heard 
Well, give us a, give us an email or contact us on Facebook and let us uh, let us hear from you and we well, can. Well, uh, wait, not just fam- not just their favorite stories that they've heard, but fam- favorite stories that they've heard us tell. But, yeah, that, <laughs> favorite story, of course. Their favorite, their favorite story that stories you've heard. of our stories we tell right. them. Yeah, right, we don't, don't want to hear about uh, some girl from yeah. Galveston or something like that. We want to hear from our, our story. Okay, that one time in band camp. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Now, here's another good day. August 22nd, that's going to be coming up, I believe, this Saturday, National Tooth Fairy Day. Oh, wow. Yeah, National Tooth Fairy Day celebrates the children's folktale character known as the Tooth Fairy. The tradition associated with the Tooth Fairy encourages a child to leave their fallen baby teeth under a pillow. The fairy then collects the tooth and leaves money in its place. I wonder what teeth are bringing these days. What do you, what's the yeah. tooth? What's uh, inflation got okay, with this? Okay, so, well, I mean, it just depends. Like, the little girl down the street got a $20 bill, and I'm, <laughs> I told my daughter, I'm like, I'm so sorry. Yeah, really? <laughs> the tooth fairy doesn't love you that much. Uh, I'm telling so you. We, we gave uh, gold dollar coins. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. I think I got a dime, but I'm, that was a long time ago. Anyway, uh, <laughs> it's national. Oh, by the way, uh, the... the, the um, the origin of this tale comes from a French story called La Bonne Petite Sorez. It's a French tale, uh, fairy tale written by a lady named Madame d'Alnoy. I'm probably butchering that. Uh, it comes from 1697, so the story of the Tooth Fairy has been around for over 300 years. I'm a big fan of lore and legend. I had no idea where that came from. And I find <laughs> it, I find the whole Tooth Fairy thing a little creepy. Yeah, Just I guess saying. Uh, not as creepy as the elf on the shelf. Uh, the less don't okay, that. yes, I, I <laughs> totally agree with that. Completely creepy. Well, anyway, now next Saturday, August twenty eighth, is National Bow Tie Day. You ever sport a bow tie, Phil? Uh, <laughs> I'm taking I? that We've as a no. We've stumped him. <laughs> I, I think I, I think I, I might have, have once with a tuxedo somewhere along the way. I may have been four. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> National bow tie encourages wearing the accessory. It's often been worn by creative and scientific figures throughout history. Bow ties were commonly associated with highly educated people. The origin of bow ties can be traced back to the 17th century in Croatia. It goes way back, doesn't it? That does go way back. Now, some really impressive wearers of bow ties uh, have included... Charlie Chaplin. I love Charlie Chaplin. Have you ever seen City Lights or The Circus? We just recently watched The Circus. It's hysterical. Or another one of my favorites from that era, Stan Laurel. Laurel and Hardy. Yes, I love Laurel and Hardy. But Stan Laurel usually wore the bow tie. Winston Churchill often sported a bow tie, as well as Marlena Dietrich. Marlena Dietrich sometimes would uh, dress in trousers and and a jacket and a bow tie. And, uh, my gosh, Fred Astaire. My wife and I say that uh, in our in our dreams or in heaven, maybe we'll dance like Ginger Rogers and Fred Astaire. <laughs> oh, one other one, Pee Wee Herman. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and and we're have moving to on? lump him in there. I'm <laughs> yeah, not a he, fan. One of these things is not like <laughs> the other. Well, anybody. Okay, well, I, <laughs> and I'm going to add one more, Ducky on NCIS. So all you NCIS yeah, fans out okay. there. Well, there's perhaps no place so lonely as an empty place that used to be crowded with people. The Greek philosopher... I'm going to mess this up, H-E-R-A-C-L-I-T-U-S, Heraclitus. He lived more than 500 years before Christ. He's quoted as saying, the only constant in life is change. And you know it's true. Things are constantly changing around us. More recent philosopher Thomas Wolfe in the early 1900s once wrote, you can never go home again. His meaning was that if you try to return to a place that you knew from the past, 
it won't be the same as you remembered it. And I know that's true. I grew up in a pretty little town in the Texas Hill Country called Kerrville. Well, it's still a pretty town, but it's not quite so little anymore. And when I go back there, I find that many of the places that I used to love, they're no longer in existence. made me really mad when I found that they tore down the bowling alley where I spent many happy teenage hours, occasionally actually bowling. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, I don't know why they had to tear that down. I had some great memories in there. But maybe demolition, though, is kinder than just allowing a place to sit abandoned and forlorn. Right. Uh, my wife, Judy, grew up in uh, Warrensville Heights, Ohio, which is just a suburb, really, of uh, just on the southeast side of Cleveland. And one of her favorite childhood memories, well, we're talking late 50s, early 60s, was going with her family to an amusement park called Jogger Lake. Evidently, Friday nights there were nickel nights, where all the rides were only five cents. I was wondering, maybe that's why I only got a dime from the Tooth Fairy, because it was, <laughs> things <laughs> because were cheaper back in those. Way, yeah, right. it went a lot farther. In addition to the usual amusement park rides, there was a water ski show that took place on the small lake. However, the main attraction was a wooden roller coaster that had been built in 1925 called the Big Dipper. Well, without warning, Jogger Lake closed up for good in 2007. For several years afterward, the park's rides, buildings, and especially the Big Dipper remained standing and within easy view of a nearby heavily traveled highway. Yet it stood empty with no smell of cotton candy no taste of custard cones, and no happy screams of kids and teenagers on the rides. It was very disheartening to see, especially to all those who had spent so many happy hours there. Uh, there was a YouTube video that shows a drone going over the uh, the, the the Big Dipper's path, and uh, you kind of get a sense of what it was like, but you can already see the park in, de- in decay there. Mm-hmm. So we have several places that we're going to look at that have been abandoned. The first few come from uh, Atlas Obscure. And um, the first one is actually uh, down in South America called the Chacaltaya, C-H-A-C-A-L-T-A-Y-A, the Chacaltaya Ski Resort. It was located just 10 miles outside of La Paz, Bolivia. Now, you might not know this, but La Paz is the world's highest capital city situated at around 12,000 feet in uh, wow. elevation, way up in the Andes, over two miles high. Uh, it isn't surprising, then, that the Chacaltaya Ski Resort housed both the highest ski resort and the highest restaurant in the world, both located at over 17,000 feet in elevation. And wow. like give you a comparison, that's higher than the base camp on Mount Everest. It was built in the late 1930s. The Chacaltaya Ski Resort was a popular getaway for middle and upper-class citizens of La Paz to go skiing and sledding down the Chacaltaya Glacier. So what happened? Well, in the 1990s, the glacier started melting. It continued melting until by 2009, it was completely gone. Wow. The result, uh, the resort was uh, soon shut down and abandoned, and its ski lift shut down as well. Since then, the resort has set like a freezing ghost town on the barren, rocky slopes of Chacaltaya Mountain. The only residents are two brothers, Alfonso and Samuel Mendoza, who still run a small restaurant called Refugio, or The Refuge. It's still considered to be the highest restaurant in the world. While guests no longer stay at the lodge, a small number of tourists do come to eat at the restaurant and enjoy the stunning view from the top of Chacaltaya. Oh, wow. uh, we've got a picture of this. I think we'll have we it did. on our, mm-hmm. our, web, our, our Facebook page. But uh, perhaps a result of, of uh, some type of climate change event that the glacier uh, has, uh, has completely gone now. 
Now, from the dizzying heights of the Bolivian Andes, let's travel to the lush tropics of the Indonesian island of Bali, uh, where we locate the Ghost Palace Hotel. That sounds like a lovely stay. Well, really, that's just what the locals call (laughs) it. Okay. The official name was the Pai Badugal Taman Recreasi Hotel and Resort. Hence why the locals call it the right. Ghost, Ghost Palace, Palace right. Hotel. <laughs> this sprawling collection of postmodern terraced accommodations lays out over a lush hillside overlooking a steamy pro- uh, tropical jungle. The only problem is that there are no guests. And, in fact, there never have been any guests. <laughs> okay. <laughs> hey, we're going to build a hotel. Yes. Well, Don't come stay at it. I, I suppose we're kind of stretching the definition of abandon here, as there were never any large crowds of guests at this hotel to begin with. Only construction workers, debts, and an incarcerated investor. Oh, that's oh why there's, there's the stop. So what happened? Well, the hotel was started sometime in the 1990s as an investment project of Tommy Suarto, who was the youngest son of the former Indonesian President Suarto. Well, Tommy went to prison in 2002 after being convicted of ordering the assassination of a judge on Indonesia's Supreme Court who had previously found him guilty of corruption charges. <laughs> Sounds like a great guy, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah. Was he pleading innocent on those corruption charges? <laughs> Evidently. And then he tried to have the judge killed. Well, with Tommy and the clink, construction on the project ground to a halt. Even though many of the rooms had already been equipped with furnishings, the hotel never opened and it's now slowly being reclaimed by the Indonesian jungle. <laughs> In time, it may be completely overgrown, like Angkor Wat, or one of those jungle temples that have been discovered you know, hidden away. We've got a picture of that one, too, I think. Yeah, it's a great place to play Jumanji. Right, I suppose so. <laughs> now, the uh, next we're going to visit the Varasha Beach Resort, in the town of Famagusta, located on the beautiful Mediterranean island of Cyprus. Well, actually, we won't be visiting there because no one can visit there anymore. Uh Uh-oh. In the early 1970s, Famagusta was one of the most popular beach holiday destinations of the world and was a favorite destination of the rich and famous. It was known for its sunny beaches, glamorous shopping and dining experiences, and excellent luxury hotels. So what happened? It washed out? Well, Cyprus... Is an island located in the Mediterranean. It's located between perennial rivals Greece and Turkey. Now, it had functioned as an independent country until 1974 when the Greeks sponsored a coup of the local government. <laughs> well, that Greek action sparked the Turks to send their military onto the island, too. Oh, nice. Real fighting broke out between Greeks, Cypriot, and Turkish troops. The United Nations stepped in and secured a buffer line separating the Greeks and Turks, and it's still there today, kind of a dividing line right down the middle of the island. The buffer zone cut immediately to the west of Famagusta, and during the fighting, hundreds of summer holiday guests were forced to flee on foot, leaving behind their cars and possessions. According to Atlas Obscura, the former resort stands as a monument to what the world would look like without its human inhabitants. Tables are still set for breakfast. 1970s cars still sit in their garages, and designer clothing still hangs on the racks of hastily abandoned shops. Nature has begun to take over. Many of the old buildings are slowly collapsing. The cars are rusting, and the pavement is cracking and overgrown with weeds. Oh, so, wow. Not wow, such yeah. a good resort any, anymore. And also impacted by this uh, uh, Greek uh, and Turk division of Cyprus, was the Nicosia International Airport, which was located in the buffer zone. 
The airport was built by the British in the 1930s and utilized by Allied bombers during World War II. After the war, a large terminal building was constructed, which welcomed thousands of visitors each year. According to Wikipedia, the airport was the scene of heavy fighting during the 1974 war and thus came under the control of the United Nations. It has been inoperable ever since. The once elegant terminal is now crumbling. There's even a jet still waiting at a gateway from 1974. It's all just like That's just, just sitting there. It sounds like James Bond, just right. like the setting of a James <laughs> Bond movie. Or a zombie movie. Now for today's bookshop spot, the part of the show where we take you on a virtual tour of one of the most magical of places, an independent bookshop. Okay, so our our bookshop spotlight today comes from right in the middle of the USA, Russell Specialty Books in Russell, Kansas, which is located right on Interstate 70. Oh, it's right by Salinas. I got some friends in Salinas, Kansas, so I know about where that is. Okay, well, for any of our listeners who might be taking a road trip across the country, you definitely need to work in time for a stop in Russell and peruse the holdings of Russell Specialty Books, located at 623 North Maple Street. Russell Specialty Books is owned and operated by a very interesting lady named (laughs) Linda Crowder. More about her in a minute. She is interesting. Now, this is a fairly new bookstore. They opened, listen to this, in December of 2019. Oh, man. I mean, if you're going to pick a time to open a business, that, yeah. oh, wow. It probably wasn't the right time, but. Oof. But here's the thing. They are the only bookstore uh, in a radius of 60 miles. It's a, a very rural radius. country there, I think. They, Russell's a small town in the middle of farming area. They were also designated, and this is what helped them stay to open. They were designated as an essential business. I would, I would agree think to that. so. And I mean, so they, I think they sh- all should have been. That, hey. Well, <laughs> and these they, are so better they, educated people. I'm just saying that <laughs> right. they let them stay open. Yeah. Uh, well, so they stayed open during the pandemic. Russell Specialty Books has been greatly embraced by the community of Russell. It's common to hear the townspeople say, we are not a hick town, we have a bookstore. No hick town here. Sorry for that place down the road. (laughs) We got a bookstore. (laughs) The store also hosts events and book signings with local and indie published authors, as well as open mic nights once a month during spring, summer, and fall. Linda, the owner, states that there was a patch of grass between them and the chiropractor next door that her husband turned into a pocket park. Wait, wait, there's there's an extra reason to stop there. You The bookstore and chiropractor. And, that's exactly. right. You get, get an adjustment and yeah. read a book. Great. Um, well, here's another one. She said, my husband, Alan, is a master gardener, which right. that's very impressive. Right. He built planting boxes filled with beautiful flowers. So in that spot in between them and the chiropractor, she says, residents donated tables and chairs, making the park a homey spot to eat lunch and read a book. Nice. nice. Yeah, that sounds really amazing. So now I mentioned that Linda is an interesting person. You see, she's not only the owner of the bookstore and the operator of the bookstore. She also is an accomplished mystery writer. Ooh, nice. She has several titles, including one called Murder is Never Forgotten, which took top medalist honors in Mysteries in the New Apple Literary Services Award for Excellence in Self-Publishing. I like another title called Ringo the Ghost Cat. This is better. (laughs) In which a cat solves the murder of of its owner. Linda states, I write mysteries because I love to read mysteries. I've been reading them all my life. So, so you could stop at the bookstore and not only pick up a book, but meet, meet the author as well. And or get it autographed. Yeah, get maybe it autographed sign it. right That's there. That sounds say. great. Uh, so you can, but if you if you are not in Kansas and don't plan to go there anytime soon, you can visit the store online at Russell, that's R-U-S-S-E-L-L, bookstore.com. They are also on Facebook and Pinterest. 
Yay. And now for something really smashing. Okay, we have to mention some place in Texas, and this isn't very far from us. So in, and I got to say that, okay, you, a lot of the times you say that we're in the greater cut and shoot area. Right, which greater is, cut and shoot area. Which is true. Texas has got a lot of really weird town names. <laughs> it, it, yes, and yes, cut and shoot is one of them. We are actually in the greater Houston area. But, you know, you could say we're closer to cut and shoot than Houston. Uh, But, you know, there there are a lot of weird town names. And so this is about one of them. In 1969, the citizens of a fledgling little community petitioned to have their own post office. The settlement was perched along the banks of Sandy Creek, about 30 miles northwest of Austin, Texas. The postal authorities in Washington approved the request but needed an official name for the new post office, which proved to be difficult. And a lot of these little towns, once they named their post office, that's the name of the town. Right. So after sending in a name and getting it rejected again and again... And I mean, again, we have a Paris. We have nearly every single town name. <laughs> yeah, how would they were? Wonder of what a, they were referring. of somewhere in the world, yeah, and it, it's this one. They couldn't get one. I don't. And it, there is the what they submitted as names. There is no record of it anymore. It's yeah, it lost makes me curious. Oh, what did they, yeah, they, they, they got like rejected six you times? Know, yeah, I mean, if, if Tomball, you know, cut and shoot that sort of thing could get <laughs> anyway. But I don't know what they were they're sending in. But they got frustrated. Uh, no they're doubt. very frustrated. So th- they wrote back saying, and I quote: <laughs> "Let the post office be nameless and be damned." <laughs> and the and the department said, "Oh yeah, okay, that sounds good. Nameless, nameless. post office." <laughs> it was established uh. in 1880. So by 1884, <sighs> Nameless Texas boasted a church, a district school, a general store, and 50 residents. That proved to be its heyday, though, as industry and trade tended to favor the surrounding uh, towns. The post office closed only a decade after opening, and now the only things that remain in the in the literally nameless ghost town are the old schoolhouse maintained by an historic society and nameless cemetery where many of the original residents rest. Ugh. And I got my info from that uh, from the Texas State Historical Society and HillCountryExplorer.com. Nice. Okay, so our next abandoned place is really amazing and stunningly beautiful. In China, and I'm so sorry, I'm going to butcher all of this. <laughs> in China, the city of Xicheng, whose name means Lion City in Mandarin, is unchanged from the day it was abandoned. According to a BBC.com article by Lindsay Galloway, the city is, quote, often called the Atlantis of the East by travelers. Xi Qing is a stone architecture dating back to the Ming and Qing dynasties, which ruled from 1368 to 1912, stands perfectly preserved 40 meters under Qiandao Lake in Zhejiang province, 400 kilometers south of Shanghai. Wow. Interesting. It's underwater. Yeah, it's underwater. The city and the valley were deliberately flooded in 1959 in order to create an artificial lake and hydroelectric power station with nearly 300,000 people having to be relocated. Many of those people had inhabited their land for several generations. Right. So in 2001, the Chinese government sent an expedition to the city to see what, what might remain, and surprisingly, the city hadn't eroded very it's much It's been at underwater, all. but it's just been sitting there, right? Right, but they, they expected it to have deteriorated right. somewhat. Uh, but the buildings, walls, and even wooden details remained. Wow. The city is magnificent and well-preserved. There are city gates, over 200 archways, stonework lions, dragons, and phoenixes, 
along with historical inscriptions dating back as far as 1777. Mm. And so remains a magnificent time capsule of Imperial China. Really? And you can visit Xichang, but of course you have to be an experienced diver to book a tour. Wow. You know, they did uh, another one in China well, about 10 years ago with the Three Gorges Dam, and I, I think they had to displace a couple of million people to find these new places because it, it, it covered up several medium-sized cities and um, just sit within. So it's not something new that, that uh, has happened there. You know? All right. That's impressive. Mm. Inter- interesting place. And now for something completely off-topic and off-kilter. Brace yourself for the oddity du jour. Well, our oddity today has to do with one of the new ways people are determining what to do with the remains after they die. You know, that is a very hot topic right now because, you know, we are the way we've done it in the past, first right. of all, is so expensive. Right. It's so expensive. And it's exactly. sort of a racket. Sorry, people. Sorry, funeral directors and all that. Unless and, you want to sponsor us, but anyway. <laughs> <laughs> and, but, I mean, it takes up so much space. And I love cemeteries. I'm not going to lie. I love cemeteries. Right. But uh, the embalming and all of that, there is a real trend for looking for greener, less right. invasive. Simpler. Yeah, much simpler ways to uh, to inter the dead. Right. So, you know, as you mentioned, most traditional methods, at least here in, in Western cultures, have been burial in a coffin of some type. But, you know, as you mentioned, it's becoming increasingly expensive. And there are also land use concerns as cemetery spaces are filling up. Of course, cremation is a much less expensive alternative. But then there's also the issue of what to do with the cremains. That's what they call the ashes after right. cremation, the cremains. Some bury them, and others scatter them over beloved sites, and some save the ashes in an urn. But have you ever considered using these ashes to create an artificial reef? Well, that's uh, that was what the what came up uh, from two college roommates back in the 1980s. Two college roommates from the University of Georgia spent a lot of time scuba diving along the Florida Keys. Over the years, they noticed significant uh, deterioration and degradation of the reefs that they were visiting. What can we do to help this, they thought to one another. One day they hit upon an idea. Why not take people's cremated remains, encase them in environmentally friendly concrete, and bury them under the water to create a healthy new artificial reef? And thus, Eternal Reefs were, was born. I like that so, idea. So That's a really they, ni- they neat idea. They took the remains, put it in concrete, right, and then dropped the block. Right, and then, yes. and then reefs grow off, off of that. that. Exactly. According to their website, eternalreefs.com, eternal reefs are living legacies that help preserve the memories, I'm sorry, that help preserve the marine environment for future generations. The concrete casings are reef balls, as they are called, <laughs> can be decorated by the deceased loved ones with mementos, handprints, even as the, as the as the cement is drying, they can, you know, that make notes in it. They can put their handprints in it. Uh, scripture references and info about the deceased person. Quoting from their website, an eternal reef combines a cremation urn, ash scattering, and burial at sea into one meaningful, permanent environmental tribute to a life well lived. Are they sponsored by the mafia? <laughs> oh, that's, oh, that's wrong. That's wrong. It was in a cement jacket. <laughs> In addition to decorating the reef ball, family members can be a part of the boating excursion to the placement site to watch the eternal reef be deployed to its final ocean rest. This is a quote from their website. All activities are designed to be a positive experience and provide peace of mind for everyone involved. 
Now, we're kind of making fun of this, but actually I think it's a it's good— It's a cool circle of life kind it of is, thing. It, it is. It is a really yeah. good concept, and I think it's good that people are thinking of uh, newer ways uh, to to deal with uh, the old house that we used to live in after we're, after we're completed with right. it. Um, you know, rather than uh, an expensive box buried into the, in the ground, so and and it being dropped, you know, dropped in places where reefs right. would grow means it's dropped in pretty shallow water. So you could dive. Yeah, you could and dive visit. to see it, perhaps, and uh, and visit it if you if you were just don't to touch. Do yeah. <laughs> and and that reminds me, and I'm just going to interject right here and say that we have something coming up. Um, oh, good good. I, I good do, segue. <laughs> this is a good segue. I do love cemeteries. Okay, even as as un, you know, even though we're we're exploring other ways to to enter the dead, I do love cemeteries and I love visiting them. And I think that we have, as Americans have gotten away from it. We used to take picnics right. there. Cemetery decorations were right. part and, of a in the life. the the symbolism is amazing to me so we have coming up in october you know we our tradition our whole one year right. tradition so far <laughs> has been, <laughs> We've to been do, doing it since 2020 <laughs> that's right has been to do a a spooky or somewhat creepy uh episode around halloween and so leading up to that we're gonna kick off at the beginning of october what's called a cemetery crawl which is a scavenger hunt for uh cemetery symbols headstone right. symbols nice. and so just just a little heads up about that that's coming down the line be fun if you if you know an old cemetery around you uh, it'll be a fun chance to get out and uh, and take a look at it that's right steve you talked earlier about the nostalgia of home well when i was a little girl i lived in valley station kentucky which is the southwestern outskirts of Louisville right. or Louisville, if you're Louisville, local. Yeah. Louisville. The area is very hilly, and alongside the highway, Dixie Highway, for those of you familiar with the area, there runs what uh, at, I thought at the time was a mountain. Of course, it was just a hill. Right. <laughs> uh, but it was very steep and wooded on the, that side that faced the highway, and so there was nothing on it but trees. Um, but at the top of the hill, you could see this large Gothic structure that looked to me and my cousin Kim like a castle. Right. You could only see the very top of the building most of the year, but when the winter came and the trees lost their leaves, you could see more of the building. So it looked very scary to us. I'm sure. <laughs> and so we made up a lot of stories about the Haunted Castle. And this was in the early 80s. I say that because later the place became very well known and touted as one of the most haunted places in America. Okay. Sweet. So if you're from the area, you already know that I'm talking about the abandoned and infamous Waverly Hills Sanatorium. Waverly Hills Sanatorium. Not so, quite a castle. No, but no still not quite creepy. a castle. Sanatorium. In the early 1900s, the area saw an outbreak of tuberculosis, creating an urgent need to build a place that would both quarantine and care for the patients. So Waverly Hill was the perfect location at the very top of the hill. Uh-huh. So the patients were originally set up in tents on the grounds. That's how urgent this was. Yeah. Uh, tuberculosis, yeah, for yeah, sure. They were set up in tents on the ground while the sanatorium was built, and the original building was a wooden structure. But in subsequent years, outbuildings to house the staff were added to the compound, as well as a children's pavilion that housed both sick children as well as the children of patients that would not be cared for yeah, otherwise. Cared for, yeah. I, I, I find that so sad. So due, the, due to the cost of maintaining a wooden structure and the need for much more space, a five-story stone building, five stories, that's how bad that tuberculosis mm. epidemic yeah. was, 
was constructed and opened in 1926. It was gothic in design and had many open-air terraces for the 400-plus tuberculosis patients to receive their daily prescription of sunshine and fresh air because that's really literally all they knew how to do for these patients at that time. And finally, with the advancement, though, of medicine, tuberculosis patients dwindled and the sanatorium closed its doors in June of 1961. So in the following years, many people tried to make use of the building. It served as a geriatric center for a while, but with mismanagement resulting in an overcrowded and understaffed facility, there were reports of patient neglect Mm. and, yeah, Yeah. some some pretty gnarly stories there. And the state moved in and closed the nursing home. There were attempts at turning the location into a prison. Then apartments, because, you know, what Why says not? welcome home, <laughs> <laughs> then an abandoned hospital and someplace sure. that was going to be a prison. But um, there was even, and this is interesting to me, there was even a grand scheme of erecting a Christ the Redeemer statue. Oh, like the one in Rio. Yes, <laughs> just like the one in Rio. That plan had a price tag of $4 million with phase two of turning the sanatorium building into a gift shop, chapel, and theater, costing another whopping eight million dollars so when they only received three thousand dollars in (laughs) donations that that plan was scrapped and it's next um so the the location remains abandoned to this day but owned by private investors who open it to curious spectators wanting to go on ghost tours or even spend the night so why is it so popular among the ghost hunting crowd well It is a huge, abandoned, and isolated Gothic building where many people died. Of course, it's considered to be haunted. I haven't even told you about the death chute yet. Okay. The death chute. The death chute. So at the height of the TB uh, epidemic, the tuberculosis epidemic, there were one or more people dying each day, and the medical staff felt it was distressing for patients to see the dead being carted away in front of them. Right. So they built what is colloquially known as the death chute. A giant Bring slide. Well, I've heard it. Yeah, I've heard some people refer to it as something like, like when I was, you know, when I was hearing about it from my <laughs> brothers and stuff that still live in the area, uh, it was something like a laundry chute where they would just place <laughs> bodies to be dropped to the bottom of the hill. Oh, there you go. Not yeah. exactly. Um, there is a 500 foot tunnel built from the first floor of the building down to the bottom of the hill. The tunnel, which still exists, has a gently sloping ramp on one side with stairs running alongside it. Medical personnel would walk a gurney down the subterranean tunnel out of the sight of patients to the bottom of the hill. So can you imagine, I mean, being a nurse and just, like, walking this? Hey, you got your steps in. Yeah, he did. (laughs) Anyway, so somebody at the bottom would be there to pick up the body for transport to uh, a funeral home. Still, there are stories of a suicidal nurse roaming the halls, children's <laughs> laughter, oh, wow. and all manner of hauntings. There's all kinds of stories about this place. You can book a tour, if you dare. If you go to www.therealwaverlyhills.com, you can uh, book a tour there, or you can also see pictures and read some of the more, you know, read some more of the history surrounding the unique location. And uh, I got my inf- information from Wikipedia and, of course, Atlas Obscura. Right. Have you been back to Louisville and uh, done this yourself? I have. I've been back to Louisville when they had it open and, and was doing tours, but they weren't doing tours at the time I was there. Right, so yeah. it's on my it's on my bucket list. Get a chance to, to, to go do it. You mentioned, uh, I mentioned my hometown, Kerrville, earlier, and kind of a tie-in here, tuberculosis, uh, because it's in the hill country. 
it was the it was where a lot of tubercular patients came from around the country uh, because the climate was thought to be um, uh, more suitable helpful, helpful yeah. for for people that were you know, trying to recover in fact that's how some of my family got there as, as well well so, now i have an aside to that okay <laughs> so in uh and i can't remember exactly where it is but mammoth cave right, in kentucky yeah. which is further south than louisville um right. there was a huge effort at that time to to house tuberculosis patients within the cave in the cave right yeah there was a cafeteria and hospital and all of that and once they entered they stayed there they did not come out they stayed in there for i don't know how long a period of time but that that lasted but they did they had this whole Mm. tuberculosis hospital within the cave interesting okay well now our next article comes from a website called theme park insider and was written by a lady named Natalie Niles, who bills herself as an ice cream truck driver and a theme park <laughs> enthusiast. That was a good combination. Nice. Uh, she's actually also a good writer, I think. For this article, she visited an entire abandoned lake region. The lake in question here is called the Salton Sea and is located in Southern California. Now, before I found this, I hadn't really been familiar with the Salton Sea. I might have heard of it. Evidently, back in 1905, springtime flooding on the Colorado River rushed into Southern California's Imperial Valley. For more than a year, the entire volume of the Colorado River rushed downward into the Salton Trough. By the time the water was stopped in 1907, the Salton Sea had been born. At 45 miles long and 20 miles wide, the freshwater lake equaled about 130 miles of shoreline. The water was beautiful and fresh. People in the, in the vicinity considered it a miracle in the desert. Soon the area was dubbed the Salton Sea Riviera. Real estate and recreation developers came in and built half a dozen communities around the 130-mile lake. Advertising boasted the Salton Sea as the place to, quote, live the good life. Of course. Yeah. After World War II, the popularity of the area boomed with hundreds of new residents and thousands of visitors each year. In the late 50s and early 60s, the Salton Sea rivaled Disneyland as California's top tourist attraction. So oh, this wow. wasn't just any, any little dinky place. It was a pretty large attraction. So what happened? Oh, no. <laughs> well, what was unknown at the time was that the flooding of the Colorado wasn't just a random, unusual occurrence, but rather a part of a 400 to 500-year flooding cycle. The Colorado River has periodically flowed into and out of the Imperial Valley for thousands of years. The ebb and flow creates a lake of fresh water, which over time becomes increasingly salty as the water source diminishes. Like the Dead Sea in Israel, it also has no drainage, which results in a desert basin as the lake slowly evaporates. By the late 1970s, the Salton Sea was notably diminishing. Toxic chemicals from nearby fields made the problem even worse. Mm -hmm. The lake became increasingly concentrated with salt and agricultural chemicals as its water evaporated in the brutal desert sun with no source of replenishment. Fish washed up dead on the shore in masses. A rotten egg stench clung to the air and grew stronger each year. Tourists stopped coming, and the once glittering resort towns of the Salton Sea were abandoned. Oh, lovely. Wow. 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 As the lake dries, the toxic sludge also dries and then becomes airborne. Well, that sounds like a fun time, doesn't it? (laughs) The Salton Sea is today the biggest man-made source of hazardous dust in the United States. Oh, no. Which way does the wind blow? Right. (laughs) Quoting Miss Niles, 
Today, the Salton Sea evokes a haunting memory of the idyllic tourist destination that once was. Skeletons of old vacation homes bake in the sun. Bits of buildings covered in peeling candy-colored paint uh, jut out of the sand. In just a few years, the lake will dry completely. Uh, so, beautiful well, lake for a while. Everybody rushed to it. And it's, uh, but don't worry, in 400 years, it'll, it'll be, be back. back. You can yeah. be back. Maybe hold on to that uh, property that, deed. That lakefront property. <laughs> <laughs> wait, wait. Those toxic chemicals, how long will those stay in the ground? No. <laughs> oh, no, they'll just blow away. They'll blow away. They'll blow somewhere else. We'll start over. <laughs> right. Now, here's another place, and this is kind of an interesting one. Uh, sometimes uh, optimism uh, causes you to look past some real problems of a, of a project. In the fall of 2008, a magnificent new airport opened in central Spain near Madrid. The Ciudad Real Central Airport was designed to serve both Madrid and the Andalusian coast via a high-speed rail link, which would whisk passengers to their destination in less than an hour. At a cost of the equivalent of $1.3 billion, the airport opened to great fanfare. Less than four years later, in April 2012, the airport completely shut down. Oh, wow. So So what what happened? happened? So (laughs) fly by night? Evidently, oh, <laughs> good Phil. One, Evidently, poor planning and over-optimism caused major deficiencies in the idea of placing an airport in a remote area to be overlooked. Only two regional airlines opened service at Real Central, and they drew little traffic uh, from passengers. People didn't really see the need to take a train for an hour to get to an airport when there were already other options. Mm-hmm. The airport closed in 2012, and today it's completely empty. Large yellow X's are painted on the runway to prevent any planes from actually landing there. So, goodness, got, got to check out those plans a little bit more. But uh, just because somebody's really enthusiastic about it doesn't mean that it's a good idea. True. Now let's switch from airports to train stations. Out on the west coast of the United States, you can experience the amazing 16th Street train station in Oakland, California. Built in 1912, this station served as the western terminus of the Transcontinental Railway. The beautiful Bow Arcs building featured uh, uh, large arched windows and a high ceiling lobby. The historic depot also was the first location of the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters, which was the first African-American union in the country. During the 1940s and 50s, the station received as many as 400 trains per day. This is a busy place. That is a busy place. Southern Pacific was one of the largest employers in Oakland during this time. So what happened? Well, by the 60s, ridership began to decline steadily. Then in 1989, the 16th Street station was badly damaged in the massive Loma Linda earthquake that struck the Bay Area. You remember that earthquake yes. that was happening right at the as the World Series was going on in in, uh, in San Francisco, Oakland area. The grand building uh, fell into neglect and disuse. However, we have some good news to report. According to their website, 16thStreetStation.com, in 2005 the site was obtained by an organization called Bridge, which is a nonprofit that primarily builds affordable housing. They have restored the main lobby so that it can be rented out as an event space. It's also served as a filming location for television shows and movies. Cool. Their website says the site offers a breathtaking, majestic main hall 
a brick industrial space and gritty urban graffiti all in one unusual package. <laughs> we got it all. That, that all right. graffiti's free of charge. Right. The space is elegant. Elegant. I'm sorry. The space is elegant yet raw, allowing you to use it as a blank but dramatic canvas to create something special. So you're looking for a unique <laughs> place to have your special event. Consider the 16th Street Station in Oakland. Now, in 1935, Hitler had a fanciful idea to build a massive Colosseum-type structure in the middle of the Nazi rally grounds in Nuremberg, Germany. Well, of course. Sure. Sounds like a good deal. Yeah. He's going to be Named around the Congress Hall. Plans were drawn up, and construction was begun in earnest. Its, uh, its stacked archways and impressive colonnades were designed to mimic the Colosseum in Rome. The impressive structure began taking shape, rising as a massive horseshoe on the banks of a scenic pond. Today, the Congress Hall looms over Nuremberg like a misplaced relic of ancient times. So what happened? Well, when World War II began in 1939, materials and resources were diverted away from the project, and it was never completed. Along with half a dozen other Nazi sites, the Congress Hall sits in Nuremberg today as an embarrassing reminder of that city's role in the events leading up to World War II. You know, it was where they had these enormous rallies in, in right. Nuremberg. Right. Hitler loved Nuremberg, dubbing it the most German city in Germany. As such, Nuremberg suffered heavy Allied bombing during the war. Most of its destroyed central district, though, has been reconstructed. Oddly enough, the Congress Hall was not damaged in the bombing. It's kind of on the edge of town, so it didn't get the, get didn't get hit. Uh, today, the site houses the Documentation Center Museum. The museum chronicles the rise of the Nazi Party, the lead up to World War II, and the devastation of the conflict, and then the aftermath reckoning of the Nuremberg trials. Very well, interesting it place. Was, it wow. was put to put to use. Right, and it, I had never heard of this, and uh, until I was in Nuremberg. Um, well, I guess four years ago, and a guide was taking us through this area, and he said, now, look at that building over there. What does it look like? Well, it looked like the Coliseum was sitting there, you know, and I had not, not realized that it was still there. Now, in, um, in west-central France, on the banks of the Glane River, was located a pleasant farming village called Orador. In fact, most people knew it as Orador sur Glane, or Orador on the Glane, Glane River. In 1940, the town was home to more than 600 residents. It boasted numerous small businesses, including a dentist, a tailor shop, and a law firm. A rail line connected Orador to the nearby larger city of Limoges, where several of the town's people traveled for work. However, today the town is completely empty. All the homes, businesses, and even the church are abandoned. So what happened? Well, this is a tragic story. On June 10, 1944, just a few days after the D-Day landings, over 200 Waffen-SS Nazi soldiers marched into the town. They rounded up 648 citizens, including 193 children. The men were separated and marched to the horse stables. The women and children were herded into the church. From the church, the women and children could hear the machine guns sounding from the direction of the stables. Then the women looked on in horror as Nazi soldiers rolled a burning hay cart into the church where they were crowded. Oh, wow. Oh, no. The interior of the church was soon ablaze. However, when anyone tried to escape the flames, they were met with machine gun fire. Out of the 648 residents of Orador, only six managed to survive by pretending to be dead. 
after these two incidents, the soldiers attempted to burn the rest of the town in an effort to hide their crime. Well, after the war, documentation of the killings at Orador Serglane were presented at the International Military Tribunal in Nuremberg in 1946. Why that particular village was chosen and who gave the order to kill its inhabitants is still not fully known. Some believe that it was related to the killing of a German officer in a nearby town. Charles de Gaulle, the president of France, later declared that the burnt-out remains of the old village should be preserved as a poignant reminder to future generations of the atrocities of war. Mm. The site is open to the public for free. I I saw it, my wife and uh, uh, my sister and brother-in-law and I saw it uh, uh, two years ago when we were in France, and it's, it's a very moving site. An interpretive visitor center includes the Hall of Faces, photos of most of the town's people who were murdered on June 10, 1944. A sign near the entrance states, We must remember this, not to see it again. We must live and build a world in which crime will be folly and reason will be peace. The uh, tragedy nice. of Orador Sergani. Wow. Such a sad story. You know, Steve, we could have covered a lot more sad abandoned sites like Auschwitz, one of the, the many Nazi concentration right. camps, or the site of Chernobyl disaster, right. which um, killed many people. But we don't want this to be horribly sad. Uh-huh. I will, however, tell you about one abandoned site that while it wasn't related to any deaths that we know of anyway, it does it fills me with a sense of hopelessness. So for those of us that grew up in the Cold War era, right. there was this sense of impending doom that just... You, you Always grew hung up over with. things, didn't it? Yeah, yeah. That that this impending doom could happen at any moment. World right. War III could just annihilate all of us. Uh, I remember the drills when we we were taught in school, where we were to duck under our desks right. and yes. cover our heads and and uh, and all of that. So when I came across this article about the abandoned Duga radar, all of the ambiguous fear I had as a child about right. that just be, about a possible third world war came flooding back. Located in the dense forest just north of Kiev, not far from Chernobyl, stands a gigantic relic, a monument to the Cold War. Once a closely guarded secret, the Duga radar can be seen from miles away, appearing as a giant wall towering Ooh. 492 feet wow. above the forest floor. It's That's a big huge. wall. It looks like, it looks like the, um, the construction part of a billboard, but just a hugely giant billboard. Uh, like the bones of a billboard. Right. Um, so among the undergrowth at its feet are neglected vehicles, steel barrow, barrels, broken electronic devices, and metallic rubbish, the remainders of a hasty evacuation shortly after the n- nuclear disaster at Chernobyl. Not a whole lot is known about the exact purpose of the Duga, translated to mean the Ark, because it does kind of, it arcs. Right. Um, legend has it that Phil Donahue... You remember Phil Donahue? Remember Phil Donahue one of the, the first, 70s and 80s. Yeah. One of the first U.S. journalists to be granted access to, to, to Chernobyl, Chernobyl after the disaster asked his official guide about the surreal sight of the Duga on the horizon and was told that it was an unfinished hotel. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah. We do uh-huh. know that construction began in 1972 when Soviet scientists were looking for a way to detect long-range missile threats. According to a formal former commander of the radar complex, the Duga supposedly used short radio waves capable of traveling thousands of kilometers using a technique called over-the-horizon radio location to detect the exhaust flames of launching missiles. 
There were many conspiracy theories about the radar, including weather control or even mind control. (laughs) It didn't help that the Russians denied the existence of the monstrosity (laughs) either. So wild conspiracies aside, we still are not aware of the exact purpose of the structure and surrounding facility. But like Chernobyl, it has become somewhat of a tourist attraction. I guess so. So I got my info from an article on CNN.com. So for the last story, which is a little bit lighter in nature. Yeah, let's end on a good one. Let's end upbeat. How about I'm that? heading back to my home state of Kentucky. There you go. So there was a luxury yacht la- launched in April of 1902. Built for railroad executive, the yacht changed hands over the years until at the advent of World War One, it was named Sachem. I think that's how you pronounce it. Okay. C-A, I mean, I'm sorry, S-A-C-H-E-M. Okay. Sachem. Pressed into service for the U.S. Navy, the vessel officially became the USS Sachem and was used as a coastal patrol yacht. During the Navy's service, the boat was loaned to Thomas Edison, who used it to conduct government-funded experiments to develop countermeasures to U-boats. Right. So at the end of the war, the yacht was returned to its owner, then changed hands a few more times before being pressed into service during World War II. So this this yacht has uh, has it's, had it, seen some seen some days. That's right. It's been around. Some stories, right? It then became the USS Phenakite and patrolled the waters off the Florida Keys. She was then modified and used for testing sonar systems before being placed out of service on October second, nineteen forty five, and transferred to the Maritime Commission for disposal on November fifth. Returned to her owner and renamed renamed back to the Sachem. Mm-hmm. The boat changed hands many more times, of course, undergoing several name changes, until finally it was purchased in 1986 by a Cincinnati local named Robert Miller for the low price of $7,500. That's a steal. Miller renamed her the Circle Line 5 and spent 10 days restoring the yacht. He then took his friends out in New York Harbor for a big you know, Ooh, the, woo-hoo, yeah, yeah. <laughs> for the ceremonial relighting of the Statue of Liberty during the July 4th weekend. And what would be her final voyage? Oh, no. Miller steered the Circle Line 5 for home in Cincinnati via the Hudson River, the Great Lakes, the Mississippi, and finally the Ohio River. And it's she made it. Way, but okay. All right. So Miller anchored the boat at the mouth of Taylor Creek near its confluence with the Ohio River on his property in Boone County, Kentucky. All right. Unable to afford the expense of upkeep, the boat was left to rest away. It is now a popular destination among kayakers. And her final name, Circle Line 5, faded but still readable. Hmm. This award-winning Navy ship that had countless owners and countless names served in two world wars, shuttled Thomas Edison about while he conducted war experiments, and attended Ronald Reagan's relighting of the Statue of Liberty's torch, had one last claim to fame. Uh Uh-oh. While still in New York Harbor, the boat was being worked on one day when a limousine pulled up to the dock. Some negotiations took place, and Miller allowed the boat to be used as a backdrop in Madonna's 1986 Papa Don't Preach <laughs> music video. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I got my info from Wikipedia and, of course, Atlas Obscura, which has many great pictures as well as directions to go visit the abandoned ship. And now it's time, boys and girls, for the trivia challenge. <laughs> All right, all right. Hold it down, crowd. Uh, now it's time for the ch- trivia challenge. Um, you know how this works. Like and follow our Facebook page at Remnant Stew Podcast. 
like and share this episode post. Oh, please share these episode posts. Uh, we, we love to have you sharing it all over the place. And put your answer to the trivia challenge question in the comments of that post. The first person to do all that will be the winner and will be mentioned in an upcoming episode of Remnant Stew. Okay, so here we go. Our question is, with attractions like Time Circle, Dead Man's Island, and Moon City, what planned amusement park closed down before it ever opened? Hmm. Time Circle, Dead Man's Island, and Moon, Moon City. City. Nice. Oh, that's an interesting one. Remnant Stew is created by me, Leah Lamp, Dr. Stephen Meeker, and I research, write, and host each episode. Audio is produced by Philip Sinkfeld. Hey, Our Phil. theme music Woo-hoo. is by Kevin McLeod with voiceover by Morgan Hughes. Special thanks to Judy Meeker and Harbin Gold. You can connect with us through our Facebook and Instagram, and if you have an idea you'd like to hear us cover in a future episode or have a special story that we've covered that you enjoyed, please email and and, uh, tell us about it at staycurious at remnantstew.com. Well, now, before you go, please hit the subscribe button so you won't miss an episode. Head over to iTunes and leave us a review. It means the world to us. We love reading those reviews. Share Remnant Stew with your friends, family, Manana, your tour guide, and your favorite professor. Until next time, remember to choose to be kind and and always stay curious. curious.